Like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, and powered with the strength of Enforced technology, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit TenkataFabrics.com slash Flex 7. Flex 7, powered by Enforced technology. Only from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Welcome back to another episode of Main Street Firefighting, a podcast by Fire Engineering. Before we get started, we'd again like to thank Fire Engineering for the opportunity and you all for tuning in. Uh, Tonight's just a quick little podcast. Um, Chris and I are going to discuss some of the myths and misconceptions about Main Street buildings um, that we kind of cover in our class typically. But we're going to hit on some of that tonight and then we're going to follow up with some of those you'll see in the Main Street memos as well so you can kind of get a little visual of what we're talking about. So before we get started, it's the start of the new year, it's 2024 and now we've we've had a, a good 2023 and the previous year before that we've done quite a few uh, episodes on this podcast and we've hit a wide swath of subjects so this year we're going to also kind of reiterate on some of the same stuff we've always done also we're going to branch out and do some some wider wider broad we're going to branch out and do some some wider perspectives but all in the context of uh, legacy main street firefighting or main street settings Maybe not a Main Street setting, but older buildings. So it doesn't matter if you live in small town America or a historic district. Um, the point is, is the building doesn't know where it's at, but we want you to know about the building, where it's at. So that's kind of the goal of 2024. Um, we're looking forward to it. And today's podcast, like Lex was saying, is just kind of a short, short little start off to the year. Um, we're going to hit on something that we've found super intriguing uh, with our past experiences getting to go across the country with this subject, and that is the myths and misconceptions older buildings when it comes to two things in in very general terms, which would be the wall ties, stru- so structural stars. Um, those can be called a couple different things because there is some trade jargon in there. And uh, cast iron. So like most of the fire service went through some sort of fire one and two program, um, and what you get out of that program is not what actually is from a scientific or architectural or engineering standpoint. Depending on the quality of the program. Depending on the quality of the program, for sure. But if you just take the program for the face value of whatever book you're in, whatever red book you're in, um, you're not going to walk away with the answers. And unfortunately, you're going to walk away with not only not the answers, you're going to walk away with the wrong perception and just bad information so it's detraining and that's where a lot of us went and for a long part of our career including myself so we're going to hit on the two myths and misconceptions of wall ties structural stars and then cast iron components in legacy buildings so like he said um a couple of the things we've talked about in the classes of the cast iron columns to start with and uh depending on what year you went through the fire academy you know in the last 10 to 20 years uh, depending on which textbook you had. In the most recent uh, commonly used books in Fire 1 and 2 academies, uh, cast iron columns aren't even really referenced or talked about at all. Um, why that is, I'm not really sure. There's a lot of focus on the newer construction, which is important. But <clears throat> like Chris said, regardless if your whole city is legacy buildings 
or you just have a few in your main street, it is important to talk about. And cast iron's been something that's confused the fire service for a very long time. Um, all the way back into the 1920s, uh, there's the fire chief's handbook that uh, talks about cast iron and what they thought happened. And then we get into the textbooks in the last few years, and they talked about cast iron columns um, under heat. And then when a, a uh, fire stream was applied, uh, what most of us were taught when it was still in the books was that uh, when you had cast iron columns under heat and you applied the cold fire stream, that is what caused the cast iron columns to catastrophically fail. And then we're going to discuss a little bit how in the 80s, uh, through two different studies, that was proven to be false. Yeah, so like Lex was saying, the book that the fire chief's hand handbook um, goes back to about the 1930s, 1920s in there, depending on what edition. And you got to understand, back in the 20s and 30s, early, early, uh, you know, 20th century, um, they were fighting fire mostly from the outsides of the buildings. They did a lot of exterior operations and, and went in limited for uh, life-saving only. So they had a lot of cast iron facades on the buildings in the 1920s, 1930s. It was a very common thing. Large, multi-story, five or six story cast iron facades. And the picture in the book um, has a, a cast iron wall kind of arcing outward, like bowing outward towards the street with um, stream application on the front of it. And it clearly states, you know, cold water on hot cast iron, you know, basically equals contraction of the wall the wall will will contract and then fall down on on the members out in front of the building well like Lex was, Lex was saying um, that actually didn't get proven or disproven until 1984 I believe is the date of the study of the 80s so for a long time the fire service had it really wrong um, and maybe that could have been from a couple reasons obviously the UL data wasn't like it is now but a lot of it just could have been from anecdotal information. You know, someone cracked a cast iron skillet in the firehouse sink. You know, on you know a hot skillet got put under cold water. The cold water cracked the skillet. Well, that must also apply to cast iron columns. That must also apply to all cast iron in the world. Well, that's not how that's not how science works. Um, that's not how material physics works either. So that's probably where it all came from. That's where a lot of stuff in the fire service does come from. Until we test it under in, empirical data. Okay, so the other big moment in cast iron was the Pemberton Mill collapse in 1860. Now, the, the, the original collapse of the building had nothing to do with fire. It was just a, a building collapse. And in, in the rescue efforts, someone knocked over a lantern and then lit the, wrecks, the wreckage on fire. And then the, the debris burned. And then, unfortunately, a lot, of, a lot more people died than in the original collapse because of the fire afterwards. But during the investigation, post-collapse, the investigation into the collapse, once again, non-fire related, they started to realize that these cast iron columns, they're hollow cast iron columns, they were non-standard casting. It means there is a variance in the casting thickness of the column. So the column on the inside was hollow, so the, the outer walls of the column were thicker and thinner in different places. And pretty obvious, there's a cutaway picture you can easily find either on Wikipedia or you just Google it. Um, and it's... it's uh, a good example of this is when they really started to look at like, oh, hold on here a second. Cast iron isn't like steel. There's not a standard metric for time versus heat equals uh, a predetermined failure point. You can't do that with cast iron because there is an unknown thickness. There's a large unknown variable now in the equation. And that unknown variable is really where the cast iron 
column kind of gets its bad reputation from um, and why when it fails, you really don't know the when. The when is the really hard part, the challenge in this whole equation. Um, steel kind of gives you a bend, a flex, a twist, a torque. While cast iron is brittle, it gives you a crack and it just, it breaks. Um, it, it cracks and crumbles. When that's going to happen, no one knows. So the Pemberton mill collapse is when that really came to to be apparent that these columns or cast iron in general has a ununiform cast and it's it's not standard. So now it's it, it becomes um, becomes very uh, you know finicky under certain loads and heat conditions. So kind of going off of that, um, in the study that we were reading about cast iron. It states that cast iron stopped being used as a structural column uh, supports around the <clears throat> excuse me late 1890s. So if you're looking at buildings and you're trying to date them and you do see cast iron columns, this can uh, kind of give you an indication of the age of the building, which may be useful for identifying other features as well. So that's something to kind of point out. I can't recollect the last time we were on a, a sizable main street, or any main street for that matter, that didn't have one corner cast iron column. Usually usually they are on the corners. Everyone's seen what I'm talking about. It's a barber shop or a candy store, or, you know, soda shop or something where there'll be one corner kind of open for the, the sh their show windows in that corner column to where there would have been normally just a solid wall right there with that column to uh, facilitate like a vestibule of some sort um, would be just that cast iron column right there on that corner. And that's where a lot of the cast iron is on main streets. So you're going to see that one entryway corner as that cast iron column um, on a larger scale you're going to see wide open spaces on first floors uh, top floors not so much because we know on top floors that's the roof and under an open span roof that's with no columns well that's going to be your arched roofs not the case if it's a multi-story building and you need an open first floor plan they got around that by putting in smaller columns and that's where the cast iron we see a lot on the first floors or lower floors um, also, you can have cast iron columns in heavy timber buildings. Heavy timber warehouses sometimes started with cast iron columns in, in the basement and then tapered up to wood. Um, I've, seen, I've seen vice versa, actually, too. I've also seen large wooden columns in the basement that's tapered up to a cast iron column up top, too. So there's kind of the three, the three uh, areas you're going to see the most cast iron on your old Main Street buildings or legacy historic districts. Not to be confused with the steel lintel, all right, so which makes sense, right? We understand that cast iron works the best under compression, like concrete. Um, steel is able to span large, wide areas. Cast iron, not so much. So the big metal beam you see going across your, your storefronts, that is not cast iron, that is steel. But sometimes, and in case of that corner cast iron post, that steel I-beam may be held up by cast iron. So now you have multiple elements of, of metals in the equation that do different things under different heat conditions. So once again, we're adding variability to the equation here. So just understanding what you're looking at is the big thing here. So like you said, we have the Pemberton Mill fire in the 1860s, which gives us the conclusion that cast iron uh, casting process is not uniform, which is going to cause some issues with the load stability that they have. And then we go to the 1920s and 30s where we have our fire chief's handbooks telling us some confusion information um, about what happens to cast iron facades under heat and then water application. 
So then we spend the entire, you know, next several decades with a lot of confusion about what happens to cast iron under fire conditions. And then we come across, finally, um, they do a study in the early uh, 1980s on cast iron uh, structural support columns under fire conditions. And the original point of the study was determining whether during renovations they needed to actually add um, some fire protection to them in any form. Uh, that's why they did the study, but the conclusions from the study give us some really good information about um, what we need to do with cast iron columns in fire conditions. Okay, so in the name of that study, the actual name of it is going to be the J.R. Barnfield and Porter Historic Buildings and Fire Fire Performance Under Cast Iron Structural Elements. So, and that was in London, and that was in 1984, and that was in volume 62A, number 12. So if anyone's real specific on work cited, um, you can go look that up. And it's all out there. It's it's definitely a really easy to read uh, research paper that they did. And they did a, about a dozen different burns or studies under cast iron columns. Some of them under a load, some of them not under a load. And some of the cast iron columns were protected and some of them were unprotected. And what they're using for their, their fire protection in this case was going to be a 25 millimeter min mineral wool kind of wrap that they would put around. So what they did was they put cast iron columns under a load and then they blowtorched them to apply heat and then they sprayed water on them and then waited to see what happened. And what did not happen was a catastrophic failure of the cast iron column due to refraction or cold water hitting the metal and then causing it to fracture. So myth busted, right? That's, that's what we were all taught what would happen that's why we were, we were taught not to the you know spray water on cast iron columns complete opposite happened with the the data and the scientific study so it's a good example of an, an anecdotal kind of axiom that progresses through history we don't really know why we why we're saying what we're saying um and then all of a sudden science comes along and gives us empirical data that that goes against everything we thought we knew about a certain subject so it was a really good study um in they actually put some of the columns under a low. So it was, it was a really good study in that, in that matter that they put the columns that were already damaged by fire, already sprayed by water, and then they reloaded them and they still didn't fail. So that kind of gave it the credence of, you know, cast iron actually is quite robust under compression, even after heat's been applied and water. And then some of them, they, they said the reason the cast iron column may have failed, may have had um, little to do with the heat and more to do with just the hose stream hitting the cast iron column. If it was very brittle, the cast iron column could have been could have been damaged more by the force of the water pressure than the actual heat. So something to kind of note there too. Um, you know, also back in the day, they had a lot larger streams that they would, you know, you saw, you've seen the pictures with the, you know, the 15 or 20 large diameter hose streams in the front of the buildings master streams are lined up down the street so that could have been some of the some of the stuff that we were doing too that we just didn't understand we saw the cast that we saw water hitting the column the column failing and we just go oh that must have been that must have been like the the hot pan and the cold water in the in the firehouse sink when in reality it was the force of the water that may have been causing some of the stuff that we were seeing but we just didn't realize that was the actual reason it was failing so all really neat stuff that came out of the study in uh, 1984, and it kind of set the record straight. So back to the study a little bit. Um, <clears throat> the, the study was done, in, like you said, in the early 80s. Uh, 
they did also did the columns not under a load and they found that the uh, rate of heat absorption was very similar to the steel. Um, however, like you said, the catastrophic failure versus the warping of the steel was the biggest difference. I mean, they were unable to give a specific determination of when cast iron will fail under heat because of irregular casting process. And cast iron is very brittle on its own. Then when the study came out in the early 80s, it was kind of not... Approved, I guess, would be the word by the fire service. There was a lot of questions to the validity of it because people had anecdotal information from their experiences where they had uh, catastrophic cast iron failure. And so they actually did a follow-up study in the 1986. Uh, they got structural engineers. They hired a firm, <clears throat> and they sent them to contact the FDNY and uh, various departments across uh, the UK, and they pulled fire information back from the 1800s um, all the way up into the 80s, and they looked at the research they had from buildings with cast iron structural support columns, and they were able to take the anecdotal information from the previous fires and combine it with their research to kind of reinforce the data for the firefighters at that time. Um, and like earlier, Chris said, you know, how did we have this study in the 80s go all the way to you know 2024 now, and it's not really talked about? Well, I think that's a couple reasons. Uh, the biggest one, I think, is that the study occurred in London, and we all know um, how well fire information travels across uh, the ocean, so I'm guessing that's probably a part of the problem. And the other big problem, even with the data at the time, was that the data set was so small. Um, a lot of people had uh, questions about the reliability of the data pool, so we'll kind of see where this goes in the future, um, but... Basically, the conclusion and the thing that we talk about when we teach these classes is that if you have cast iron interior support columns and they are going to be under fire conditions at any point in time, you need to get a fire stream on them to protect them as quickly as possible. And the biggest difference, again, between cast iron and steel is that, like Chris said earlier, <clears throat> there is no, there's no warning. We can't give you a temperature range. Um, it's very unpredictable, and so keeping it cool as quickly and for as long as possible is uh, the key to keeping them from failing and from catastrophic collapse. A big takeaway from, from this entire segment of this episode is the big, massive blind spot the fire service had for many, many, many decades in the fire service. Um, and it goes to, to show you how many things do we just do or think we know, and no one really asks why. You know, why is that? Why don't we put cold water on cast iron? And then when was that proven? And then maybe we should start to question things more and not just keep going with what the status quo is. Okay, so the next big myth that we're going to get into is, is probably more prolific, if, if not just as prolific as the, the myth of cast iron. Um but it's less scientific and it's mostly all visual and just all due to the fact that we, we learn out of books instead of coming from the trade side of things. And when that happens, you, you start to get massive blind spots to where our, our textbooks lead us down a path that we don't really have clarification for. And we just kind of go with what is in the book and then never question that. So that's going to be structural stars. Well, and the other problem with that is that structural stars are not even taught in fire academies anymore because they're not in the textbook. And once again, so the, the, common, the commonality between these two things are 
they're both wrong. They're both myths that, that were, you know, mis misinformation and they're both gone. So as time went on, it was wrong information. And then instead of fixing that, the textbooks just didn't add it or they stopped publishing it. So the fire service literature has a really bad habit of not amending or fixing bad information and what it's easier to do instead of coming out and saying hey we didn't have this right for all this time but here's what we know now or here's what we should be saying now they just stop publishing it which is a a, a terrible thing so here we are right um we have an, an entire generation of fire service that looks at a structural star on the side of a wall and you get all sorts of different responses to that um, a lot of those responses are incorrect. It's going to be something like that star means that that building's unsafe. Um, that's, that's obviously not the case usually. Um, another thing would be that that star always has a rod going from one side of the wall through the building to uh, the other wall. And there's another star over there and that's a tie rod tying those two walls together. Not always the case. Um, or those are decorative definitely not always the case. So it's very ambiguous on what we're what we're looking at when we come to these structural stars and when we do these classes usually that's the we that's the, one of the biggest like aha moments in the classes. Most everyone had this wrong and myself included just as I had it wrong with the cast iron I was taught one thing and then learned another thing later in my career. So the big thing with the stars is the first myth is just because they're on the building doesn't mean the building is unsafe or do not enter. That That is, there's a lot of reasons you don't go in a building. The presence of structural stars um, is a small piece of all the factors you put into that. And in the case of the Midwest and where, where we're at in Missouri, um, we are on a, a fault line. So a good portion of the structural stars that you see on the brick buildings in the Midwest, and that is everywhere west of West Virginia to east of Kansas um, are there for seismic protection. So the stars you see in the buildings in Chicago, Milwaukee, Cincinnati, St. Louis, all the way down to New Orleans, um, those are put into place not for the building is bad. It was put in for seismic protection from the New Madrid fault line. So those are put in at the time of construction. They, they don't mean the wall is bad. They don't mean that you shouldn't be in the building. They don't mean anything unsafe. Um, they're just there as the same reason any structural seismic protection is there. Now, there are ones added to reinforce areas of damage or weakness, but you can tell the difference based on location, which we'll get into later. So there's the first misconception out of the way right there. Stars don't equal bad. Um, stars can equal some issues. Stars can give you some, some data about, hey, this building has gone under some um, repairs. They've done some repointing in the tuck pointing. Um, they fixed some cracks, and that's fine. That's That's been repaired. Um, if you come up to a building and you have stars that aren't in a line, meaning that they're not, not running down the side of a wall in linear fashion at, at a, a floor level or at a ceiling roof joist level, um, and you have just like a constellation of stars in random places. Well, yeah, that's probably put in place for structural repairs. 
Um, now, that's something to note. So they've repaired that. They had some structural cracking in the wall. They've put up the stars to to shore up that portion of the wall. They've come and retucked it, resealed it, and and there you go. That that wall is probably okay. The big thing is is the damage happened after your arrival, or meaning the stars actively popping out of the wall. That would mean there's some movement in the floor joists or in the ceiling, um, in the roof members. All that kind of stuff is what you really want to look at. But just the presence of stars themselves, that's not much of, of, a, of a red flag. Um, like Lex was saying, how they're, how they're in the building, where they're at in the building, that means more than just that they're there or not there. Um, the point is, is all stars are not equal. All wall ties are not equal. And some of them do have the rods that run through them. Some of them do have the turnbuckles. They're, they're, they're larger. The, the stars that most people see are about the size of your hand. This will be a five-pointed star. Those do not have rods that run from one wall to another wall through a void space in the, in the building. That's just about a 12-inch piece of flat stock steel that goes and tacks into a, a joist or a floor joist or some sort of ceiling joist member or even like a rafter beam in a pitch roof. Um, those are the ones that I had in a house I owned, a very old home. And uh, I thought that I had the traditional tie rods that went through one side and out the other because that's what I was taught in the book. And then I got up above my ceiling one day to do some interior tuck pointing and I didn't see a rod and I was really confused because I had these stars on the outside of my house. I knew they weren't decorative. So I went on the inside, did some more investigation and I see a little little metal strap going through my brick wall and, you know, it's three course brick and, uh, at, and it goes in and it tacks into what was the ridge beam of, of a pitch roof on top of a, you know, brick building. And I was really confused on what I was looking at because that's not in any fire service book that I can cite currently. Um, it might be in some old fire service stuff that, that I, I don't own, but nothing with IFSTA on the front of it have I seen with the the proper definition or image of just structural wall spreaders, structural wall stars. There's trade jargon in there because there's numerous terms for these things, but just your general wall ties, um, not with the tie rod going in between the two walls, just the, the structural stars that are, that are put in place that go through the brick wall and then tie into a, a structural member on the other side of the wall. And the biggest way is to tell the difference between these is like you said, location. So if it's running through a void space, um, it might be have a rod on it. The larger the size is also a good indication of that. And it makes sense, right? <clears throat> if it's a smaller star, like you said, about five inches, and it's surrounding a window, you know, you're not going to have rods running through the middle of your room. So that that is going to be just a tie or an anchor shut. So it, yeah, the size is the big thing too. So the, the big the big tie rods that run through each each uh, you know space and, and to tie the walls together, those are going to be larger. Um, essentially, it's, it's a washer for a brick wall is what you're doing. You're spreading out the surface to mass ratio on that load. So you're going to have the big metal diamonds. You're going to have the big metal circles. They might be larger stars. It might be a four-point star like an X or a cross. Um, big S's are another one you see. Um, some of them are very ornate, um, almost like a fleur-de-lis. And uh, the stars that you see the most aren't those, though. The ones without the rods are like uh, almost exactly the size of your hand, and it's a five-point star. They can be also smaller versions of the circles and smaller S's. But once you 
really compare the two, you can you can point them out pretty quick. Um, knowing if you have a rod or not going through there. So also, um, the people that rehab these buildings nowadays, if they are rehabbing an old row home um, in the Northeast or just an older home in the Midwest where these stars were put on at the time of construction, they'll, they'll still put these systems in. Um, instead of running a tie rod parallel to the floor joist running from wall to wall, what they'll do is, is they'll run, if they have to do some, some stuff at the front wall or a sidewall or a floor, they'll, they'll run these stars, a, a, a new one, I mean like a modern version of this. It'll still be a star, but it'll be a modern um, system of, of anchorage to where they'll run run a rod. It'll be a short rod, maybe three to five feet through one or two or three floor joists running perpendicular. So they'll run that star on the A or C side and run that perpendicular through like the first two or three floor joists to kind of give that wall some stability while they're doing some interior remodeling, and a total gut rehab. When you start removing floor joists and stuff like that in the structural assembly in a brick building, um, you start to really have to kind of reinforce some things because those floor joists are really what ties those the total package together. Um, the four brick walls do a pretty good job. You know, they're tied together at the corners, kind of like you would stack hay bales. But once you start removing floor joists, um, you, you start to kind of lose some structural rigidity. So they'll put those in place when they're doing full gut rehabs. And, and that's something to kind of be constant of too. So there's the really old ones that are out there. There's the really new ones that are out there. And then there are the decorative ones. Um, and the ones that are decorative are really easy to pick out because they will not have anything in the middle. It'll just be a structural star or a wall tie with no bolt in the middle. And that makes sense, right? No one's going to go up there and stucco a fake bolt in the middle of that star to to simulate that rod being or that turnbuckle being in there. Um, so what you'll have is you'll, you'll have an old star and it'll just be in a random spot or they'll try to make something look cosmetically, you know, a matching, but they won't have any bolts in the middle of those stars. Well, that that's obviously not a real structural um, member doing any, anything it's not that's not a star supporting anything that's a, that is a that is a decorative star at that point okay so that's that's our two big myths and misconceptions of um you know legacy buildings it, it was the the cast iron myth and then the structural star um myth so we, we like to bust those when we get out um and, and the cast iron one is obviously other than the study kind of hard to to demonstrate but the structural star one is super easy to demonstrate when I mean, you just walk outside any old main street or old historic district and you can see with your own eyes what we're talking about um also if you go to like a house or a building like an old building salvage company you can go get these stars um and they'll have the straps still on them and you might be able to find the big ones with the tie rods too but you can you can bring those into the firehouse and you'll you'll really uh you know get some surprise looks on, on some faces when you bring that into the firehouse and go, look, this is what those stars really are most of the time. They're not, not every star has a tie rod going through it. So um, that's obviously an easy one to demonstrate. So that's kind of where we wanted to get with this um, short little podcast, kind of shortened to the point. I'm um, starting off the new year with, uh, with that kind of thing. And this is something that we, we do um, in our classes and we've had good success with it. So Go out and, you know, get your eyes on the buildings and kind of keep an eye out for what we're talking about with the cast iron and the stars. If you're more of a visual learner and maybe had a hard time understanding some of the topics we talked about today, you can check out uh, the Main Street memos that we do and uh, Twitter. Both have some visual examples of both of these topics. Um, but like you said, that kind of wraps up today. We just wanted to keep it short and to the point. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Main Street Firefighting, a podcast by Fire Engineering. As always... 
If you have a recent fire on Main Street that you'd like to discuss, please reach out. We'd love to hear about your experiences. Until then, stay safe and have a good night. Like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, and powered with the strength of Enforced Technology, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit TenkataFabrics.com slash Flex 7. Flex 7, powered by Enforced Technology. Only from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. 